four. We all need a little bit of pump up music now. <laughs> Spending a lot of late nights this week um, watching election results coming through. But um, welcome to episode 29. I'm Brandon Ross, along with Richard S. Greenfield and Walter Pysik. And welcome to episode 29, guys. On the election, um, yeah, it's it's been a long week between that and earnings. Um, I, I really thought we were going to have an answer by this podcast, Brandon. I, yeah, um, I, I think we know what the answer is, though. Um, and this it appears to be over now. It looks like Biden's going to win the election. But I think the the clearest thing that we've seen from the election is is just how divided we are as a country. And hopefully, hopefully this is the start of a new day. Um, you, you could say what you want about Biden um, either way, but he's centrist and empathetic man. And he's he's walked across and worked across the aisle before. And hopefully he can bring us all back together. And in my opinion, I think having a split house and Senate um, will help in that regard. Um, but just hopefully this is, this is the start of the new day, whatever, um, anyone's political affiliations are, um, and we can, we can move forward in a much more bipartisan way, um, than the election results, um, indicated. Okay. So the question now is what happens to TikTok? Like does TikTok, does a sale even happen? Or is TikTok literally going to operate <laughs> that's, as that's it? That's what you're as, thinking about. I'm trying to be all like, you oh, know, I'm I'm thinking about the implications for tech companies right now. Sentimental and um, uh, I I don't know what's going to happen with TikTok, Rich. My guess is that TikTok just lives on um, like it was before uh, before it came under attack. Um, yep. but I, I think there, when you start to think about big tech, I, I actually think that that is a bipartisan issue. There are problems with big tech on, on both sides of the aisle. Um, there are also those on both sides of the aisle who are not for tech regulation because of competitive reasons, um, with China and, and other reasons. So that's going to be a different kind of an issue that probably doesn't fall upon partisan lines that will get that will have to get worked out over the next several months. I still think it's better than if you had had a decidedly Democratic Senate. My guess is oh. it would have been faster to get, you know, tech regulation or doing things that were harsher. And I think that's why the tech group overall had such a big rally throughout this week. And it just probably takes a bit of the fear out of the market. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And I think that nobody wants big, as far as the market's concerned, big shifts um, either way. I think that everyone would like for stability purposes is to move a little bit more towards the center, which if all three branches of government were were controlled by the same party, that probably would have been a... Um, a tougher thing to happen, even with uh, a centrist president. 
Right. How many hours of sleep have you had in the last 72 hours, Brandon? Um, roughly. We all, all know we all know that I'm addicted to cable news and have been for the last several months. I would say that I've probably slept an average of three hours a night um, this week. Um, but um, hopefully we'll get a little more sleep going into uh, the weekend. Just got to get through this podcast. And about a hundred other post earnings things. But yeah. I, I want to stick on the election, Brandon. You found this tweet. Why don't you read it? Because I think it's really interesting, not just for politics, but really for the whole media universe that we look at. Yeah, this this one is is from AOC and just just reading it. She says there are folks running around on TV blaming progressivism for Dem underperformance. I was curious, so I decided to open the hood on struggling campaigns of candidates who are blaming progressives for their problems. Almost all had awful execution on digital and then in in all caps during a pandemic. And Look, AOC is not my favorite person in the world, as you guys know, Um, but I think we learned a lot in this election and the need for media and politicians to adjust to the digital world, um, just like we've talked about other businesses having to, um, uh, is, is at the forefront. And Going back to the last couple of presidential elections, we saw Obama and then Trump use digital very effectively um, for their victories. And AOC, for you know any of her other potential flaws, has been effective in connecting with voters on digital. And we talked about Among Us and and um, her being uh, in that game and and talking with with uh, an audience on Twitch. Um, and she, she's been very effective at understanding where the voters are and how to connect with them. And I think other politicians need to follow her lead and clearly also the pollsters who have not figured out how people communicate now um, right. and, and how to get take the temperature uh, <laughs> of the of the electorate. So, well, what, what I thought was fascinating, they, is they could also real- take a lesson. Roku last night gave a couple of amazing statistics that sort of speak to the same change in behavior. So they looked at September viewership and remember, they they're the OS on TV. So they understand what you're doing on the TV, whether you're using linear TV or streaming TV. And they compared September to January. So basically normalized for sports coming back versus when sports were there in January. And they said, if you looked at heavy sports fans, they watched 26% less linear TV in September than they did in January, and they streamed 17% more. And if you looked at heavy NFL fans, they watched 29% less linear TV and streamed 16% more um, television. And so to me, it just sort of shows that something is changing, right? Like something, the, it, and, and the pandemic um, brought a lot of trends that were, were happening forward. And We've talked about the the problems with sports viewership in general, um, and that part of it is clearly cyclical um, with the with the election and and COVID and some other things, and no fans, whatever. But there are secular trends at work here that have been pulled forward by COVID, and I think that that the Roku stats really speak to it because. 
those people that are in that survey um, or in that data clearly aren't just watching you know, CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. They are spending more time off of the television ecosystem. There's just too much other content to watch on all of these streaming platforms. And it just, once you're in that world of streaming, you're not in that linear TV world nearly as much. But yet, you know, marketers, I don't care whether you're Colgate, I don't care whether you're GM or whether you're a politician, your right. behavior of how you market has to change. And that's what I think, you know, it's amazing to me how much money continues to get spent just doing the exact same thing. You know, they say the definition of insanity, right, is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And I, I feel like that's sort of what a lot of brands do and a lot of what politicians do. And I think this is going to be sort of a wake up call that you need to embrace digital. We're obviously seeing a big surge in spending on Facebook, on Snapchat, you know, Pinterest, like we're, we're you know, Twitter, obviously, like all of these platforms are seeing a surge. But it is still amazing how many dollars continue to just be spent in that same old fashion. Hopefully, this is a wake up call to a lot of them. Let's see. So the NFL was sort of the only thing that's uh, doing reasonably well. Um, you know, ratings are still down for the year, but they actually had a good week last week. Last week, ratings were actually up. Walt, were you watching last weekend? Uh, Rich, that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> I'm not it. Like, why did you do that? <laughs> okay. Like, you, you know that I watch all football and all sports. Like, what, what, what? what well, why do you think last week was better? Any reason? In football? Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know why people, I don't know why ratings are down for certain sports and what people are doing. So I don't, I don't know. I well, mean, it's, it's product is good. Well, right. Yeah. The product actually has been pretty awesome, but this was the week leading up to the election where if you think the election was the problem for people not watching sports or the NFL, you would think that ratings would be down the most this week. And they were actually had their best performance of the season. So that kind of puts that to bed. Um, sometimes we just say, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. It. I don't know what to tell you. If, <laughs> if, if some losers don't want to watch football anymore, I, I don't <laughs> that's their problem. <laughs> that was what I was I expecting. I don't, know what the hell to, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, okay. So, so while the Tucker? NFL, so while the, while the NFL is doing reasonably well, what's not doing well is regional sports networks. And Sinclair, which just 18 months ago bought the RSNs, and we have, um, we have thought this has been uh, a ridiculous valuation of what they paid for the, the networks since the very beginning, um, took a $4 billion write down on these assets earlier this week. And I think it just speaks to the whole regional sports network model is under a lot of pressure and it's not just regional sports. I mean, you know, we have a tweet here from James Miller uh, who wrote the book on ESPN origins and he wrote workforce reductions at ESPN, 300 laid off plus 200 jobs that won't be filled. So 500 represents the largest layoffs or the largest workforce reduction in company's history in the memo to employees this AM this morning, uh, CEO of ESPN, Jimmy Pitaro, calls this an inflection point, quote unquote, requiring, quote unquote, great urgency. Everyone's feeling this change. There's yep. no getting away from it. Yep. I think the RSNs, in, in my view, are going to are going to probably feel it the worst 
mostly because their content deals are are more staggered. But also, we talked about this before. I think the attachment to teams in sports and to local teams is is one of the themes that is is going away as um, uh, as especially Gen Z and even millennials relationship with sports changes. It's more about players rather than teams. More about players and stories and also sports betting, which is, you know, expanded in demos. Thanks, thanks to mobile. And, um, it's going to be a really tough time, I think, for the RSNs, even tougher than for a company like ESPN going forward. The, you know, the, the challenge you run into, right, though, is that sports fees keep going up like the NFL rights fees are going to double, maybe more uh, yeah. for, for some of the buyers of these content. Maybe ESPN's doesn't because Monday night was already such an absurd price point. But the the numbers are going up a lot, maybe 60, 70 percent in total for all NFL rights and revenues for all of these cable networks. I don't care whether you're a national network like ESPN or you're a regional network. Revenues are not going up anymore. They're going down. And so you're sort of living now in a world of having to reduce cost and hope that you can figure out a digital strategy. And no one's really figured out a digital strategy for sports streaming yet. Yeah, I, and I'm honestly not optimistic. I mean, there is a digital strategy out there. It's just a much less lucrative business, which is to which is to sell the networks <laughs> over the top. But that's also not a good strategy necessarily for the leagues and the teams who also want to have casual fans really engaging with their games and kind of keeping that that tribal feeling around around their teams and i mean how do you define casual are you stuck in the way the world existed 10 or 15 years ago well let me finish yeah go ahead where someone was watching television and they were flipping through channels and happened to find the game that that how do you you can't reach yes or just or just having the game available to you easily if if you want to watch a game every couple of weeks and kind of keep that relationship up. But with how does the, that work or functionally? If the, or if the teams are are um, are how hot does it work functionally? And you, and you get involved. It's not easy. It's not no. easy. As, as have, I mentioned if before, if you have the bundle, you could do it. Sure. If not, I think that but, the other possible but, um, digital alternatives are not going to really allow for that. Sure. And that and that's unless you start selling games a la carte, which is even worse. So I, I think it's going to be an extremely challenged business. And I personally don't have an answer that keeps the profitability levels anywhere near where they are today um, or that is as healthy for the league. Maybe moving to broadcast would help or if Internet giants, Amazon gets involved Right. And and takes on kind of the old model or uses it um, as a loss leader for prime or something. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, let's say Amazon provided this shit for free and it was on their thing. I still don't think the way you view content, you're going to click into an app. It's more lean forward now, as opposed to in the old TV ecosystem, which is lean back. I I think I agree with you. Sports is going to have a lot of problems. And I'm wondering at what point um, 
that starts to show through on on renewals of of sports rights well, or team valuations sports. yeah i think with, t- with team valuations i kind of go back and forth because um there is still that scarcity value um uh, of teams a guy uh, like oh, I, I just go back to Walt's experience that he's had multiple times trying to find individual games. It is such a pain in the ass yep. to find stuff on digital. Yep. People are not. But by put the up way, even even the next generation of sports teams buyers, if they're not attached to teams in the same way, they don't they don't exist. <laughs> Meaning the next Walt Pisic doesn't exist is basically what you're saying. No. No, I'm talking about like team buyers, like all everyone oh, who's buying teams is like, I don't know, Gen Z and up, right? I mean, I guess one way you could do it is sometimes on Twitter, and obviously it's a limited platform, you see live videos in your Twitter feed and you kind of click up and or click in. Obviously, you're not trying to attract the Twitter audience per se, but what if what if on YouTube there's some random video that pops up for this kid to say, okay, I'm going to click on here's a baseball game that Google is is now hosting, and maybe you get some casual viewership that way because it's it's kind of integrated into whatever the digital platform that it is. I mean, My belief is that it's in any kind of social app that's a scroll. Um, yep watching longer form content doesn't really fit. So that eliminates a lot of those. I think one really good way is just to start broadcasting games on platforms where younger people are hanging out and spending their day, right. whether it's, whether it's Twitch with the, with the, um, uh, the right host that identifies with a younger audience and can talk about other things while the game's going on, something like that. But, um, Things are things are going to have to change for the longevity of of these leagues. I mean, you've heard me before um, talk about my distaste for Joe Buck announcing all these sports games, and it's awful. Just a, I thought just you were going to say Joe times. Biden for a second. <laughs> no, Joe Buck. Um, so why does this dude get such a bad right? There has horrible. to be somebody has to like this guy for him to be in this position and to keep getting re-signed. Why don't I just don't understand why they don't allow me to pick my own audio like this technologically? If, yep. To I your point, these Twitch, these Twitch, whatever content makers could be the announcers of some sports games and bring in a different audience. I certainly would enjoy listening to anyone but Joe Buck for any of the different sports that, that I end up watching. So, like, this seems like an easy, easy lift in terms of helping to broaden the audience. There I have, if there's a, there is there a Joe Buck bobblehead I could buy for Walt? I, mean, I feel like there should be a bobblehead on his desk, like, just while we do the podcast. Why don't we just get him a, um, a cameo from Joe Buck? Oh, that would be that would be amazing. Hi, Walter. Amazing. I know you hate me, and I want to know why. I don't hate anyone. <laughs> I just find his voice exceedingly irritating. I know you think I'm irritating, really and then I suck, and you turn your <laughs> television down every time I come on. I mean, I'm not alone. There's plenty of accounts on Twitter that you can I know. follow. I, know. While, while I, I don't find him that irritated. Someone has to like this. Maybe we should do a Twitter poll. And it, it does anyone out there actually like Joe Buck? Or right. if you're listening to this podcast and you like Joe Buck, send us an email. Brandon at Lightshed TMT, Rich at Lightshed TMT, Walt at Lightshed TMT, and let us know. All right, let's move on to the next slide. Otherwise, we're not going to make the dish earnings call. 
Okay, so this is um, ties to the ESPN reorg and sort of the disruption in sports. And what I thought was interesting is I don't think a lot of people saw this over the last week that Disney promoted. This is a story that was broken by Jessica Tunkel at the information. Disney promotes broadcast executive as head of networks. So Deborah O'Connell uh, is now in charge of all PL for Disney's networks. So that means that Deborah O'Connell is in charge of ESPN's PL. So what they're able to spend on sports rights, whether it be the NFL or NBA, et cetera. What's interesting is that Deborah O'Connell has no experience in running cable networks or sports networks. Um, she comes from ABC not ABC, the network, ABC Channel 7 in New York, the local ABC yeah. O station where she was general manager for the last um, less uh, just over two years. Before that, she was head of sales and marketing for ABC 7 in New York. And so to me, it just seems like sort of was it ABC 7 before or was she just like a marketing exec at, exec at the mothership? I don't know. Maybe or, I don't know. I'll go back ABC. and check. Whatever. It's, but the, the point, point is, is the, the point that I'm trying to make is that they've put several executives. The head of streaming uh, is from the ABC TV stations. The head of all of distribution now, Kareem Daniel, comes from the theme park division where he worked for Chapik. And now the head of PL for all the networks comes from the local ABC affiliate or ONO. It's just sort of this, you know, the, the reorg is definitely sort of bewildering in terms of just the executives that are being promoted uh, at Disney. And I think, you know, it, it's just adding to a lot of change. It's going to be interesting to see how this type of dramatic change with executives that are not from these businesses historically, do they make, you know, really dramatic decisions or do we see more of kind of the same? I mean, it's obviously all part of this idea of the shift to streaming just not clear why these are the executives that they're choosing. Hopefully when Disney does their investor day on December 10th, we learn a lot more of like why these decisions make sense. And by the way, Rich got invited to Disney's virtual investor day, which was, which was shocking to all of us. I didn't get invited, but you know, that's okay. Yeah. No hard feelings. Was, it's okay. I was very excited. Yeah, that's this is very, the first one in a, in a long time. I think yeah. the last one either of us attended was the ESPN one, which I think I went to. Um, that was a long time ago. Okay, right so before let's before ESPN. Oh, I remember that. That was in Bristol, right? That was the only time yes. you've been at their headquarters in Bristol. Yes. You took, some, you took some nice pictures. You should have done that in your background. Like you should have one week. Yeah, you those, should have that were picture. Nice. I, was a, I was a lot thinner then. I, I, I photographed a lot better. You were like at the sports center desk, if I remember. Yeah. Taking lots of selfies. With Agam. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Walt, you want to start us off on this one? Well, what you're showing here is a tweet from The Verge saying T-Mobile's T-Vision hands-on, the basics, but not much else. And then you, there's a couple other um, tweets below here uh, referencing what appears to be a little bit of a controversy um, that Discovery and Viacom at share concerns of T-Mobile's packaging in their channels on T-Vision. I think, Rich, maybe there was a comment from one of the executives about this on one of their quarterly calls. Um, Basically, David Zaslov came out swinging saying this is not allowed. And we're talking to T-Mobile about it. 
And then you were on the T-Mobile call yeah, shortly thereafter. Mike, Mike Sievert said, we're complying with all media contracts. And then kind of softened the comments up afterwards saying like, well, we're going to be talking to them, blah, blah, blah. So um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. I don't, it wasn't clear when that, when um, Zaslav, I guess, had, had made those comments that was T-Mobile trying to be proactively disruptive or whether this was kind of like an oops yeah, I guess we should have checked whether we can do that. Um, it didn't seem like it was it was proactive, so I don't know what the deal is here. Like, is this normally what happens in these content negotiations? Is that someone just because didn't Dish do this at one point, and there was some kind of debate about whether they could use content a certain way or not? Well, I mean, look, Verizon was the classic battle, right? Where Verizon, Verizon and Disney sorry, got into one. a yes. they got into a lawsuit with Disney because of the I forget where they had this two packages the sports. I, there were two names for them, but they had That's a sports right. and, and a non sports. was saying, yeah. like, yes, we we've looked at the contracts. We think we can. That do wasn't it, so. mix and match. What was it? choice? I don't even remember. I, I don't know, but there it's was a name for it. Together and ha- and who ended up winning that dispute? Do you recall? Disney ultimately, they, I think they basically settled, but basically Verizon ended up changing its packaging as a result. I mean, I'm guessing content guys who have done this for however many decades have a pretty good sense of how to construct a contract. And when, so it's probably a good guess that the telecom guy doesn't really know what they can or can't do. So we'll see what happens. I Sometimes people engineer um, drama. Right. In this case, I just don't see. Let, let's assume that like they shut it down. You imagine Seaver coming out like, oh, my God, I can't believe the content guys. are. Do- I don't it doesn't seem like there's a path of why that would be a strategic thing for them to do to, to go to, to battle with the content guys. Um, I tell you, what's more surprising to me is that YouTube TV just hit three million subscribers and is sort of, in our view, you know, they're they're the gold standard in doing this. And so to me, the most even leaving the, 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 the disagreement or dispute aside, the larger part of that slide that was interesting to me is like, okay, another VMVPD, not exciting, move on. Like this, they're not breaking new ground in terms of some type of super exciting new way of laying out a streaming service for channels. The other funny thing is who would want those channels when those, when that package first came out um, and you looked at that, that slew of channels that were the, I guess the Viacom type channels, like, does anyone watch those? Like, who would pay the money to watch those channels? Look, there's shouldn't, a service called Zaslav be happy that, that they're actually willing to offer those channels, or does he just realize that no one's actually going to subscribe to them? So here's the problem. So there's a service called Philo that we've been tracking since it launched. And, you know, I these the, the services can get hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And so that's Ooh. incremental for the, the problem, though, is what the same reason you're thousands. smiling. Correct. Not millions or tens of millions. And so what all of these companies want to make sure is that all of their channels are bundled in the big bundles of channels that that get millions of subscribers, not tens of millions of subscribers. And, and so T-Mobile is going to be a source of millions of subscribers in a larger bundle. Well, the fear would be, what if they are a source of a million or two subscribers and they're not part of the lead service, meaning the sports package, and they get left and they only get the kind of the leftovers for the non-sports. Everybody wants everything bundled together because they're really worried about, you know, the shift and what if a package without them takes off? And that's the real issue. Like Viacom had, you know, better than expected subscriber results today because they got packaged into YouTube TV and they picked up 3 million subscribers for the Viacom networks. Like everybody wants to be in every package. And the fear is, is that you get cut out 
And therefore, somebody can price it a little bit lower than somebody else. You get cut out and then you're, you know, you're toast for history. I mean, that's sort of the why everybody wants to always be in everything. And it's why basically all of these services end up at the same price with similar packaging. And it's all about features and functionality, not yeah. price. Hence, it's very, hence very hard to innovate. Of, of, of YouTube TV, who still only has 3 million subscribers. Uh, yeah, I mean, these are still... As, as, as much as we love it, and it's so awesome. Right, but, but what's really happening is people are just shifting away because all of these things are too expensive, too inflexible. Yep. Consumers don't give a shit that, that, that these contracts don't allow flexibility and that everything has to be jammed in. Consumers are just looking at the price value going, why don't I just take Netflix at $14 or take Amazon for no incremental cost or Apple TV for five bucks a month? Like all of these yeah, things. And I, just- unless you're a sports fan, which, yeah. you know, there's there's that, again, that interrelation between the bundle and sports. Whereas people cut the cord, less sports, sports becomes less popular, more people cut the cord sort of situation. Not good. And tied to this whole discussion is we've got Comcast talking to Walmart now. This came out after our podcast hit last week that Comcast and Walmart are in talks to develop and distribute smart TVs. And so it looks like Comcast is finally trying to get away from its core footprint so that you would actually have X1 televisions inside of Walmart. I assume not Walmart's only inside of you know the world of Comcast. And so this might be the first time that Comcast takes X1 I guess out of footprint, Brandon, which I think you thought yeah. would never really happen. Um, yeah, I th- <laughs> uh, in terms of the VMVPD, I think that it never really made sense because you're what you're doing there is you're you're talking about um, a business, and we, you know, you could analyze businesses like Fubo or whatever that is probably not going to be profitable on its own. But I think what Comcast is doing here is they're looking at the connected TV market and looking at Roku being, you know, a low to mid $30 billion company on sub $2 billion of platform revenue and scratching their heads and saying, well, you know, we have an operating system that we've developed over the years in X1. We now have Peacock, which is equivalent to the Roku channel. And hey, why don't we kind of put that together and leverage our existing um, infrastructure for, for advertising ad sales and some of the ad tech pieces that they've bought over the years and, and come up with a, a real national and maybe one day global competitor. And I don't know, what do you think NBCU on its own is worth? Uh, like it, uh, $60 billion or whatever it is. And here Roku is sitting at half of that with, with what they have. Hey, why not? Why not take a shot at this? It's just sort of amazing that they could have bought Roku less than two years ago. Yeah, well, that, no, that's I, a that whole was, other thing. I, whether, whether they could have bought was, it for $6 billion. Yeah. Two years ago. I know. Whether it was NBCU, um, Fox, who had the investment in, in Roku, or the other thing that you wrote about was Walmart buying them. And now there's, yeah. you know, talks in this particular deal of Walmart being in, involved. So I it was don't know. A no bra- it was a no brainer for Walmart well, to get into this business. It was, in my it mind. was a no brainer as we looked at it a couple of years ago, but you know, legacy media execs, what can you say? Well, speaking of legacy media executives, 
this is one of my favorite tweets of the week. So Christopher Nolan's Tenant is coming to 4K, Blu-ray, DVD, and digital on December 15th. So I'm we were talking getting the DVD copy. No, I know, but like on the podcast just last week, we're talking about. <laughs> oh God, I'll use it as a coaster. <laughs> I mean, on the podcast last week, we're talking about how wouldn't it be great if what sort of HBO Max was hinting at was that they drop Tenant onto HBO Max um, for the holidays, and here comes news that you know it is coming out for the holidays, but it's coming out in traditional home entertainment, which means it probably ends up on HBO sometime. My guess is in February or March. Look at Walt; he's gearing up. Uh, just, keeps talking, keeps talking. <laughs> let 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 him become a sprung coil, please. I mean, <laughs> you, you buying a copy for the holidays, Walt, for your household? You you can buy it on Blu-ray. I don't even know what a Blu-ray is anymore. But look, I am not a media analyst. Um, <laughs> So I certainly acknowledge that I don't understand how the media industry works. Um, I think you have a pretty good idea. (laughs) It's absurd. It is absurd (laughs) that they're not. First of all, uh, I just I, I don't even all right. know where we to we we got it. We got it. It's absurd just, that they're this, not using this as this a way was, to leverage HBO Max. This was our weekly chance to have Walt voice his number one frustration in the world. That was cathartic, and now we move on. So, I mean, no, no. So, so let's just so, think about let's the just explain value opportunity of getting subscriber growth at AT and T from HBO Max. I just don't. And, and I and I will defend Stanky and Jason Kylar. It's not their fault at this point. It, it's clearly their fault that they didn't put it directly onto HBO Max originally and use it as a huge marketing okay. event. And what about now? So the problem now is once you release it in theaters by contract that the studios have with their output deals. So when you basically every movie that Warner Brothers releases into theaters that is a non-animated feature film has to go to HBO, not HBO Max. This gets into the complexities of HBO versus HBO Max. And so they couldn't make it an HBO Max exclusive for, you know, right as the next window. It would have to go to HBO. So it would be on your cable system. It would be on your, you know, your YouTube TV, whatever your, you know, MVPD service is. It couldn't make it an exclusive to HBO Max because it went to theaters. If you would never gone to theaters, you could have done this. But as soon as they made the theater decision, they're also making the decision that it goes to HBO. And I'm guessing since it has to go to HBO versus Max, they're also saying, hey, we might as well milk it for home video along the way. And it just it's yet another example of having both a foot in both canoes in this industry. Right. Where like you're trying to balance the old with the new (laughs) canoes. You know, you're trying to straddle the two. Look, contracts are, contracts are meant to be broken. We're in a we're in a different. We're in the middle of a pandemic. You're trying to launch a major service. Like, you, if you got to pay someone off on some contract because the incremental value you can get to drive people to HBO Max is is going to be far exceeding. Like, get it done. That's why the executives make the big bucks. Get it the fuck done. I don't. I just don't understand. Well, Wonder Woman. Meanwhile, by the way, HBO Max, I will say, has a great show. Um, what's it called? The Un- Undoing. So, for those of you, that I've heard that's good. Have been it's not an HBO, HBO Max. Max. Uh, no, no, it's not an HBO Max show though. It's an HBO show. To be it fair. is. It's a, yes, it's an HBO show. It's Casey's show. It was on HBO. You don't need HBO Max to get it. 
Oh, that's too bad. Well, so much for that. Well, so much for that. Yeah, I you can see- watch it on HBO Max, though. It is available, obviously. It's just not exclusive to HBO I Max. I did see an HBO Max commercial on cable news along with, you know, the reverse mortgage commercials and um, Prey, which you're an investor in, Rich, um, that seemed to show original content for HBO Max. It said HBO Max and highlighted original content. And I thought this was one of them, but I don't know. I guess the message wasn't clear that uh, you need HBO Max for certain things and HBO for others. I don't know. Um, Well, just sticking on theme, just I just I I just want to know if you need a reverse mortgage, Rich. Well, no, I just, I, I just, I, I, I just want to stick to, I, 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 I just want to stick to movie theaters for a second. Threw him off. It did. It did. Who is, the, the, who is the? Is it that uh, Tom Selleck? Tom Selleck. He's doing the mortgages. <laughs> and like, you can trust. You can trust me. You can trust me. He's like, I don't have a fucking reverse mortgage, but you could trust you can trust me. me. <laughs> like that Bye. old school, like eighty. There's everything about it is so eighties. So if you if you were watching Fox News over the last few days, you saw an endless array of of my pillow commercials. Well, when do you not see those on Fox News? (laughs) That company Uh, must be like worth billions of dollars. Is that a public company? I have no idea. But ticker like MYP or something. (laughs) If you were watching CNN on election night, the, the ad that blew me away was it was a tenant ad and it, the ad was big movies are back in theaters come see tenant on the big screen meanwhile like theaters are closing down all over the world because of the surge in covid that we've all been experiencing and starting to see happen um state by state and country by country and it was just like at the same time as all of this is happening then i see this show up uh, or i was listening to the amc theaters conference call and Adam Aaron is quoted, starts quoting from Winston Churchill. Now, I want to just for listeners who weren't on the AMC call, he gave the same <clears throat> Churchill quote at least four times. And he read the quote from beginning to end over and over again. And this was the fight them on the beaches wartime speech. Um, we're fighting this virus with all of our smarts and all of our might. And it was just insane. Like <laughs> the, the the theater business. I mean, silent enemy, Rich, the silent enemy. The challenge is, Brandon, they don't have money. They need to raise capital. And I don't know who would lend more capital to this business, not knowing when the business comes back to normal. It's not Adam's fault. I just don't know. Obviously, when should a movie studio put a major feature film out? It's China's fault, right? Right. It's China's (laughs) fault or not. One of the things that the election which, by the way, it is. Uh, but the, the one of the things that the election has distracted people from, at least momentarily, is the fact that the coronavirus is at a really horrible. Yeah, it's at the it's, moment. It's, it's a, really so to it's talk really about this stuff ugly. now. It's like you know, to say we're turning the corner, whatever it is, in terms of the theaters or whatever other topic. It's crazy. Like, we're, what were the cases yesterday? One hundred twenty thousand or something like that. Uh, just- I, I posted a picture on my Rich Lightshed Instagram story this morning. And he is verified ha- on Instagram. Go on. Real influencer. Yeah. Uh, but what was amazing is the line, the length of the line for getting tested in Connecticut 
was the longest I've seen since at least since May, maybe even since April. I mean, it was staggering to see how many people at 8 a.m. were lined up in their cars. Yeah, it's fine to I think everyone has a different opinion on this and different views of science and what have you. But um, if you if you've gone through the process or, you know, people that have gone through it it's it's clearly a very scary situation i think the broader the yeah. numbers become um the less willing people are going to, to be to embrace things like theaters or outdoor concerts or, or concert or whatever you know whatever the situation it's just it's just the fact of the matter like when it touches you personally yeah your view tends Changes. to change yeah tends to Man, change. i i think that a lot of the states that had more defiant views towards COVID, just didn't experience it in the same way that we did early on in New York. And, you know, like, look, Jess went through it and that was a very scary time for, for me. And we've all known people close to us that, that went through it. And I, I think you're right, Walt, um, as this proliferates more and touches more places that it hasn't really um reached in a big way before i think that there's going to be trepidation and it's just it's just in the back burner of the narrative for the past week or so because everyone's been so focused on on the election but it's that's gonna you know this election that'll change at some point and you know we'll be right back in the thick of things um and you know i mean look i don't t-mobile as example reported yesterday and i'm trying to figure out like the mix of gross ads and churn and things like that i'm like i don't know when Corona is going to end. I don't know. Is it going to be that they're going to benefit because people are going to be still in lockdown a year from now or not? Like it's just, it's increasingly hard to predict um, business um, business outcomes for an ex- now an extended period of time yep. as the numbers continue to rise. And now we have to deal with potentially a new president and what his response is going to be, which is going to be different potentially than what we've seen over the past nine months. So I think you my know, hope. I think our uncertainty level in terms started. Um, just it's a, yeah, our uncertainty ahead. level regarding how Corona is going to impact um, our company's numbers. To me, is just the same thing with Cogent. Like Cogent's out there talking about like, oh, we can grow revenue, and lawyers aren't going to move out of the city. I'm like, how do you know that? Like, because the lawyers <laughs> I know in Westchester County are saying I'm never going back to my office in New York City. So like, I don't. To me, the uncertainty level um, again, partly distracted by what's happening with the election right now. Um, is actually going up in terms of trying to figuring out what our numbers are going to look like going forward. And I think you're actually hearing it from company management teams on Q3 earnings where they are all really nervous about trying to give any type of prediction, even though many of them had better experiences in Q3 than Q2. They're very nervous looking into Q4, seeing the surge and, and basically exactly what you just said, Walt, I think is is impacting their view of how to think about not just Q4, but even into Q1, obviously, given sure. that there may be a very different policy. Yeah. I think, though, that... If one thing you have to keep in mind, though, is the vaccine and we can all kind of, you know, hold up hope that 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 comes soon and works. And I think with Biden being president, a lot of the skepticism for taking the vaccine that was there on those who didn't trust um, Trump on it um, hopefully goes away. As he I just wonder if it, but, it more. but does it and, roll out slower? I don't know. I, d- I, don't, I don't know. I, look, I don't know. As soon as the vaccine is ready and approved by the FDA um, and science clearly um, backs it, 
I think that that Biden will be be quick to get to get it distributed. I mean, I'm glad you're optimistic about a vaccine. I just don't know whether there's any data to support the fact that we'll have a vaccine in a month, three months, six months, or ever. No, I don't. I, I don't know either, Walt. It's just I, as I said, it's just it's just hope. Um, and yeah, so, so we obviously can't forecast based on hope, and that's the issue, that, right? As, you're, as the you're cases right. are going up. And we're trying to look out a couple of, and that's, not, it's not, it's not short term predictions anymore. Right. It's not like, Oh, you know, in Q3, if my gross ads are going to be a little light and my churn is going to be a little light and like, yeah, you're talking about real 2021 like, and sure. maybe beyond pred- predictions. And this goes by the way, for the COVID losers and also the COVID winners. Absolutely. What is the, what is the video game business Correct. look like with, with these continued tailwinds and a lot of the changes that have been pulled. Oh, <laughs> There you go. Actually, next right. so slide. Talk about talk about Nintendo. Way, that that was not um, that was not in, intentional. Um, yeah, but, but, look, but Brandon, but, let me just but, be, look, hold on before you introduce games, this. Okay, I was just going to say I'll we started anyway. COVID. I was going to say COVID started with me trying to find a Nintendo Switch. Like that's yep. that was and, basically and the beginning the way, of our podcasts. That was that's right. Twenty nine episodes ago. I think I made fun of you for being too cheap to buy one on the black market. Remember that? So go ahead, read the tweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is from uh, GI Biz, get the games industry account. Nintendo expects Switch to sell 24 million units by the end of March. I believe in their fiscal year. I believe that was up from something like 17 before. Um, and Switch Lite has now sold 10 million, um, one in seven of all Switches sold. And yeah, continuing on this theme, the games industry continues to be one of the biggest kind of beneficiaries uh, of COVID. And there's been a real broadening of the player universe. And we've seen the rise of a lot of these much more social but casual games on other platforms besides mobile, although Switch is obviously portable, um, including um, Nintendo's Animal Crossing, which I think is close to being the all-time highest um, unit sales. But anyway, all of this, this broadening of, of the player base and this move to more fun, casual games is is right in Nintendo's wheelhouse. And they have, you know, pretty legendary IP um, to, to leverage off of. And, um, and you're seeing it in the numbers. There have been some hiccups um, recently in the video game world, EA, um, you know, earnings weren't great yesterday, but they've kind of been the exception rather than the rule in, in the video game business. And um, and I would expect that if we see continued lockdowns, this uh, this this shift will have longer legs, and the permanence I mean, it, of it. EA is will, will EA still at one eighteen. I mean, it's not like it hasn't had a huge run, right? I guess. I mean, it was at like 160 two years ago, though, (laughs) whereas, you know, you're talking about Activision and Take Two um, trading at, you know, basically all time highs right now. Um, Two companies that really have their shit together um, a little better. And, you know, EA put out uh, two, you know, 
crappier versions of its of its sports games by by Metacritic um, um, uh, standards, and you know their their problems relative to the rest of the industry have been pretty well documented. But but look at the same time. They're still going to do like five and a quarter, whatever of of earnings this year. They're they're still seeing real growth. Um, it's just disappointing relative to kind of whatever what everyone else is doing. And it's still not an expensive stock, by the way. They have a lot of cash. So, yeah. Uh, moving on. Um, over the weekend, the Sunday Times, the column for Ben Smith writes. There have been conversations at Twitter about acquiring Substack, seeing it as a kind of Twitter premium. Now, Brandon, on this podcast, probably 10 or even 15 weeks ago, yeah. you were sort of, uh, I would say, foaming at the mouth for the concept of a premium Twitter tied to news. Yeah, I, yeah, for, for news. I, well, really, because there's been so much talk about Twitter entering the subscription business um, and being able to expand their business model. And the only thing I could think of was helping those of us who hit news paywalls all the time out. But I think this particular acquisition um, of, of potential acquisition of Substack um, is really interesting. So for those who don't know, Substack is a subscription newsletter business where creators can have, you know, direct relationships with their customers and directly sell um, their newsletters. And I it would get Twitter into the subscription business. And also it, a lot of the sort of threading and thought leaders that you see on Twitter, this um, it would be a natural transition. They're already probably using Substack, a lot of them anyway, um, to, to, to longer form content and a way to monetize their influence that they build on Twitter. So when you think about um, the subscription news business, it's it's sort of hard not to look at what's happened with New York Times. I, I want to just frame this because this was a tweet from Jerry Smith that said the New York Times added almost 400,000 digital subscribers in the past quarter. They got to the 7 million mark. But Let's leave that aside for a second. Let's look back in time. So in February of 2019, the New York Times said it would grow from its current 4.3 million total paid digital subs that it sorry, total subs, meaning both digital and print, that it would go from 4.3 to 10 million by 2025. In 2020, they're already at the 7 million mark up from 4.3. Just sort of amazing how fast they're scaling. And obviously, we've had COVID, we've had a crazy election, but the pace at which the New York Times is transforming into a subscription business and away from advertising, to me, is is really one of the, to me, it shows that people are willing to pay for things that they want and you know the subscriptionization yep. this, of the consumer this, this relates to substack right <laughs> exactly like people, people are, are willing, willing to pay to for things sub subscriptions correct um i think you know the real question now surrounding nyt stock is with trump on the potential way out uh, how does that affect the news cycle and and how many what their subscription growth looks like going forward well, tw Twitter was supposed to crash, right? I, th I know. Personally, I think it's overblown, but um, but uh, we'll we'll see. 
I mean, someone tweeted me or someone messaged me the other day saying with a with a with a Biden presidency, Twitter's done, like literally done and over. Stick a fork in it. And I, I look at Please. it and go, I think that's just absurd because I think at the end of the day, first of all, I think Trump is probably still going to be even if Trump's not president, I think he's still going to be very, very. Active well, well, he will be active on Twitter if he's allowed to be, because he will lose some of the immunities you know, when he's not present, some of the immunities that he has right now um, as as a political leader. So I could see him getting banned pretty quickly. I don't know. What Speaking do you think of which? Oh, is, does this queue up our next one? Yes, it does. I would. Think. Oh, well, why don't if it comes up, Rich, Rich operates the button where where we pull up the next uh, tweet. Yes. I can skip and, to that. And let yes. Walt uh, read Maria's tweet here. Maria Bartiromo. Um, this is this. This is she's referring to. I'm not sure what she's referring to, to be honest. This is the same group who abused power in 2016. I will be leaving soon. Twitter, she's referencing. I will mm-hmm. be leaving soon and going to Parler. Please open an account on Parler right away. Her many of her tweets earlier uh, in the <laughs> week had been. By the way had been blocked by Twitter, not blocked, but basically you had to click that view button where she was basically saying that the Democrats were, were conspiring to steal the election. Those were tweets that Maria Bartiromo herself was tweeting um, and they were hidden. So she is very outraged by this and is going to quit. She claims now very soon is going to be quitting Twitter and moving to parlor. Is this like when Walt? Is this like when Walt Mossberg quit Facebook and Instagram and said he was never going to use them again? Well, it's also like how people were going to leave the country when Trump got elected. There's this like I'm outraged. I'm going so we'll. I I will not be going to parlor myself. I'm perfectly happy being on Twitter, but I'll be monitoring her account to see if she in fact does leave Twitter. But she said that she's going to parlor at parlor. What is this parlor, Rich? Because this is at parlor. This is at parlor. So it's some what the, the actually looking dude with 4,500. 4, so that's where Maria wait, and wait, everyone I, is going. I, it, it seems to me that she probably linked to the to the wrong account. Oh, OK. But a, as we take a little bit of a step back, is Maria even relevant anymore? Like, who cares about Maria Bartiromo anymore? This, this isn't like the late 90s. I was, hin- I was hinging on every one of her tweets, so now I'm going to be. I'm very sad to see her allegedly leaving to go to Parlor, but I will not be following her there. Whatever. I can only monitor one social media account at a time. So, um, shifting a little bit to IAC, um, video's been obviously. You know, you talked about video gaming exploding, Brandon. Yeah. But but video's been obviously a, a pretty huge category. Everyone's trying to figure out how they do more video and. Uh, a company that we use every day. I mean, we've been a big fan of Vimeo for a long time as a way to, you know, it's how we distribute a lot of our content to our our subscribers and, and um, the fans of Lightshed. So why don't you read this tweet? Okay. This is from CNBC Tech. And this, this news broke on the um, IAC letter last night with their earnings. And it says, Correction. I don't know why the correction. IAC considers Vimeo spinoff after achieving $2.75 billion valuation. Okay. Um, brought this up to to Joey when we, we had him for our Lightshed Premium Access, uh, whatever it was, a month or two ago. To me, this is an absolute no-brainer. Vimeo 
is a SaaS business. It's doing like 250 million um, in rev now, but growing at uh, mid 40s um, revenue growth. And <laughs> the, the kind of valuations that SaaS businesses that are growing that fast are getting um, actually makes the 2.75 look, look pretty inexpensive. And you're talking about a company with a $9.5 billion overall um, market cap. So this should unlock um, a lot of value if it is indeed for shareholders, if it is indeed spun off. And it also, Vimeo has been largely a roll-up. They've bought a lot of pieces um, to continue to build out their tools, their tools, tools and their, lots their of tools. tools and their stack. And this gives them also their own currency rather than using the IAC currency, which is, you know, a little bit uh, perhaps undervalued on the on the sum of the parts basis. So to me, this this is kind of a no brainer. And well, especially when you look at Unity's valuation, right? I mean, when you oh see the God. success, yeah. when you see you know what John Riccatello and, and that team has created over there, it's hard not. I'm sure if you're sitting at at IAC to go, even if we're not Unity, if if we can get some of that love valuation wise. I mean, I think a couple of years ago, people didn't even yes. know what Vimeo was within IAC. Like it was totally disregarded and and, and well you know, i think a lot of people ignored. just didn't understand what vimeo was they looked at it as being like some kind of um youtube competitor uh which which it isn't and i think that this will give people a chance to understand um what the business actually is which is which is a SaaS business so Snapchat uh, has long ignored influencers. In fact, you know they actually made it really difficult to figure out like who to follow and how to find an influencer. And it's actually one of the reasons why I think what was it Kylie Jenner back in the day was like I'm leaving Snapchat and I'm going over to Instagram or whatnot. And you know they sort of never made it easy to be uh, an influencer on Snapchat. Obviously, there's been a huge shift in how Snapchat functions. Yep changing the UI, making it a lot easier. Map has been brought forward. I mean, the amount of kind of product changes and iterations and the A-B testing and learning that's gone on at Snapchat has really been impressive. And what they've done just recently is started to actually, while people don't have follower accounts, meaning, you know, you, me and Walt will not have follower accounts for kind of key high profile snap stars, as they call them, or the they're yeah, influencers. influencers. Yeah. They're actually putting, in this case, Julian has 866,000 subscribers. And so they're providing more visibility to the, the, the scale of the influencers. And I think, look, why is this important? The influencers no like it, it reminds me of like, why are Grammy Awards or, you know, why are gold records or silver, you know, platinum records important to musicians? It's a level of success. It gives them, it makes them feel good. It makes them want to be part of the platform. They love that sort of notoriety. It's not just the blue check on Twitter or the yellow star on Snapchat. It's also about the scale of your audience. And I think bringing this data forward for certain people it really makes sense for Snap and will only help them grow the amount of engagement they have with influencers on the platform. Yeah, I think one of the early failings um, of Snap was that Evan, and this is going back to pre-IPO because we, we talked to um, a lot of creators at the time, was they just, they, he didn't embrace the creator community. He, 
Snap was only about your friends. And I think uh, that was a huge lost opportunity. Now you, there's a way to build business, a, a business and a profile um, on Snap, which, which should re-solidify um, the creator community uh, on that platform. I think this was a no-brainer and should have happened a long time ago. Now, Brandon always tells me that, or Walton, I always tell Brandon, we're not allowed to do earnings reviews on on the podcast. So Brandon has a tweet here about earnings, but he's telling me it has <laughs> nothing to do with earnings. So we're going to let him do it. Uh, and you be the judge uh, and make okay. sure he, he's, he's, he keeps to that. Thesis. This, is, this honestly, this is <laughs> because um, I, I couldn't find a tweet for what I really wanted to talk about vis-a-vis Live Nation, but and so I was they like, did report earnings last they night. They did report earnings last night. I was like, you know what? Just any tweet on Live Nation to open it up would be good. But I'm going to read it from Variety Music. Live Nation reports 83% of fans keeping tickets, but a 95% revenue drop from last year. And um, look, <laughs> the 83% continues to show that there is... Uh, demand um, for concerts whenever coronavirus is over and and the industry comes back. What we don't know is when that's going to be, how much longer it's going to take, and what the financial implications for Live Nation are going to be until before they get to the to the other side and whether they're going to have to raise money. But the biggest thing that kind of came out of earnings last night um, was that. I think, and we've said this before, they're becoming better and better positioned for post-coronavirus to be a leaner and better company than they were before. And the thing they brought up last night was that they've been working on the globalization of Ticketmaster, um, which is, in in our view, a, a huge margin opportunity. For, for those that don't know that are listening to this, Ticketmaster has been built on separate platforms, kind of country by country. Um, either, Do they still have the blinking green thing overseas? <laughs> um, I think that's gone everywhere. OK, okay good. Um, good. But many of the platforms, whether they built them or, or they were bought, are steeped in very old technology. The the whole system is not scalable. There's a ton of, of technical debt. And altogether, that creates um, the need for much more engineers and for them to continue to do acquisitions as they move into new markets. Putting everything together on one scalable system should get rid of a significant amount of labor, a significant amount of CapEx um, related to um, to, to the building and changing the platform and also should allow them to enter new countries without necessarily having to do acquisitions. I think this is a really big deal. We've kind of beat on them for, for not having this in place a long time ago, but during COVID, they finally had the time instead of putting out fires to to really uh, start this. And they announced $200 million of permanent kind of um, cost cuts yesterday. And some of it already was related to the the early fruits of, of changing over Ticketmaster. They wouldn't give a target on what the savings is going to be, but 
my guess is this makes Ticketmaster a higher margin business and also a much more cash efficient business. Coming out of Corona in a stronger place, which has been your thesis for a while. Another slide or are we done? Well, we're done, but I have a really important topic that I want to ask Walter. So a week ago, and I know it sort of got lost in the fact that we had an election and we're still having uh, the process is still playing out. But last Friday, The Mandalorian season two came out and I consider you the resident Star Wars expert in the light shed team. Thoughts on season two? First episode was great. As good as season one? It's one episode, so I don't know. We'll episode two is out today. Was great. We watch an episode. We're watch. watching. Okay. Rich, I might and come. Then, vi- I might come visit you later today. Uh, just. Uh, that's fine as long as we can do it outdoors and. <laughs> do I need to wear a mask? <laughs> as long as you keep six feet apart, probably okay. <laughs> okay. Connecticut's not doing so well, so we got to be no, careful. I, I know. I haven't well, seen Rich or Walt since mid-March. Well, I'm going to say it again for the second week in a row. I'm hoping by the time we get to the next episode, we will actually have an official president. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, hopefully, but maybe even by the time we send this out, it'll happen. But at worst, hopefully by the time we record the next podcast, we'll actually have a new president or at least a decision on the presidency by the time that happens. Yeah, and hopefully we can move forward from there. Have a great weekend, everyone. Great to see you all. Bye-bye.